The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. Please consult a healthcare professional with any medical questions and concerns. If you are experiencing an emergency or need immediate help, call 911. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a therapeutic relationship. I just get so angry. It's hard to sit still. I don't want to be this way. My brain just feels all scrambled. Welcome to Scrambled. I'm your co-host, Chad Douglas. And I'm Nikki Shields. And this is episode 20, Relatively Normal. And Nikki, before we get into the meat of the episode, we have a review to read. All right. Yes, we do have another review, and this is from 24 Riptide. And I always like to see what people call themselves when they do reviews and wonder what they mean. Handle, is that what that is? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So this one's entitled Excellent Information, and this person gave us five stars. They say, after having two children with anxiety, I was curious as to what they had to say. I felt so affirmed that what they described was exactly what we observed. As adults, they have started listening to these podcasts to prepare for the possibility of their own children showing signs of anxiety. They agree with what is being described is what they felt. They also agree that early intervention, medication, and the things we did to deal with it was key to their success as teenagers and adults. So we want a a big thank you to 24 Riptide. We appreciate you taking the time to, to put that review out there for us. Absolutely. We appreciate it. And we encourage you to do the same. It doesn't take that long to do it to either give us a a five-star rating or a review. Believe it or not, that gets more eyes and ears on the podcast. And so that's what we're all about, right? Is starting the conversation. And uh, you you guys can help with that. And we we just want to thank you guys uh, for downloading and listening and sharing this. You can also hit the subscribe button and that way we will land our new episodes in your uh, podcast app every other Wednesday. Although during May, we're doing Mental Health Awareness Month. So we're doing an episode each week. And this episode, we're going to talk about normal. Before we get into the meat of this episode, again, because we just, you know, didn't get into the meat yet. We're just, you know, seven course meal here, Nikki. I want to go back a couple episodes where we did a deep dive into discipline. And I wanted to follow up on something because I used, as I often do from these, a lot of your advice and tips and stuff with my son who has anxiety. And just a couple days ago, we were coming back from uh, St. Louis, a soccer game, and he wanted to go to Ikea. And we just didn't have time to go to Ikea and he wouldn't accept, we can't go today. It's too late. So my wife and I kept our cool the entire time and it was a nice calm conversation, but it's like, he just wouldn't let it go until we started to get aggravated. So once we sensed we were getting aggravated, he sensed it. So then we backed it down and I'm like, so we used your advice, which is great. And it worked because no one blew their top, but how do people get over that where it's just like, just stop asking, accept no for an answer? So it takes a whole lot of practice for everyone involved. For okay. him, he he just doesn't yet know what to do with that intense feeling of disappointment. He doesn't mm-hmm. yet know how to handle, like, they're not going to let me do the thing I want to do. And that is really hard for me, right? So it just takes a lot of time, practice, and then continued cognitive development. Like some of that is just the brain continuing to need to expand and grow and and be able to sort of adapt to situations where what he wants is not possible. And so, you know, it sounds like you both did exactly what you should do and you kept it cool and, you know, you stayed with it and, you know, he still was disappointed and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And so the only thing I could say, you know, to add on or, you know, if, if the situation continues is just keep going back to empathy. 
I know you want to go there. And it is so hard when we can't do what we want to do. I don't like that feeling either, but it's a big one. And I'm not sure how to handle it sometimes too. It's really hard. And and you, and there's no but to it. There's no like, but you need to knock it off because you're driving me crazy and <laughs> I'm going to drive off the road. It's, it's just staying in that place of like, I get it. I hear you. This is hard. This is so tough. And, you know, I, I think I said this in the episode when we first talked about, you know, the brain and how to, to begin to deescalate children. Uh, they don't, always like it when you use empathy um, because mm. then if you're being, you know, kind and empathetic and you're speaking sort of to the emotion that, behind, that is behind their behavior, you're not the bad guy, right? They can't be mad at you because you're being Ooh. super reasonable, right? So it gets a little frustrating for them and you might see the behavior go up just a wee bit, but if you stay in empathy, you stay in that place, they'll come back down to meet you, right? And that's, that's challenging. And I will tell you that my success rate is like 23% at, at, at staying <laughs> in empathy when, when they push really, really hard. Because yeah. what happens is if you, you know, they keep pushing, they keep pushing and you just, you lose it. You're out of empathy. The tank is on, you know, empty. Yeah. You, at that point, now it starts all over again, right? Now you've yelled or you've lost your cool. So now yeah. you're the bad guy. So now they're upset. And then if you come back around and try to be empathetic again, it's just, it's just, it's a whole new, it's a whole new battle that starts. And so the key is to just stay with empathy. Don't follow it up with anything like, and you need to knock it off, or here's what I need you to do. There's no, no need to control behavior at that point. It's just acknowledging where he's coming from. And then you aren't the bad guy. Like the circumstances are. We kept validating his feelings too, but it, I mean, it was going on for like a half an hour yeah. and my wife and I are like, all right. Yeah. You wanted to tuck and roll and be like, I'm yeah. done with this. Yeah, yeah. I get that. Yeah. So then that's going to now go into the meat of this episode mm -hmm. here with a nice little uh, transition. Is that age appropriate? You mentioned a lot of it's just brain development. So mm -hmm. is that air quote normal? He's 11. So as our title indicates, you know, what normal is, is relative to your child and the situation that you're in. And so mm -hmm. um, some kids who are, you said he's 11, mm -hmm. some kids at 11, it's completely normal that they don't yet know how to deal with disappointment or frustration and those kinds of things. Um, some kids at 11 are pros at that. But I would say the vast majority, it's pretty standard that that's really, really hard. I know, you know, we just recently observed in my new 14-year-old, like, she's not new. We've we've had her for 14 years, but she just turned 14. Just days ago, yes. <laughs> just days ago. And so, um, but we've realized over these last few months, she's handling disappointment better. When we say, no, you can't have that, you know, expensive pair of shoes or no, you can't go do this thing. You know, there's still like some pouting and some... Mm, but it, it doesn't escalate anymore. And that's that's kind of new and exciting and gives me hope that maybe we're on the right path. And so I would say at 11, yes, a, a degree of that is normal. Now, and, th and this is where it gets right into the heart of what we want to talk about today. Even in a kid who developmentally, it's normal for them to not have that figured out yet, there is a point at which it's concerning, right? If you're on, you know, at this point, were you in the car? Were you, where were you when this was going on? Yep, in the car. Okay. So for anybody trapped in a car with somebody yeah. who's having a little bit of a meltdown, anything over five minutes is going to be kind of like, oh my gosh, I can't do any more of this. But because there's no place to distract him, nothing to do, he can't walk it off. He, can, You know, it wouldn't surprise me that that lasted a little bit longer than anyone was comfortable with. And I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a symptom of anxiety so much as just, a, you know, he doesn't yet have that skill figured out. And he was in a situation where his other coping skills couldn't be used. Yeah. Just an 11 year old boy. Yeah. There was also another adult in the car. So we were trying to figure out like. <laughs> Bring it down. Please stop. You're yeah. making us look bad. Okay. So 
then you have that age, but what if you have the youngers, the the toddlers, the five, six-year-old who don't have the brain development that an 11-year-old would or the 14-year-old would? Mm-hmm. Well, so then it would be completely normal to, to have a, a disappointing situation or a frustrating situation escalate. And so when we talk about what normal is and isn't, when, I, when we say it's relative, it, it's because it truly is different from kid to kid. So like if you think about your own children and the differences in their personalities and their reaction styles and how they handle things, you know, what is, what is totally standard for one would, would definitely not fit for the other. And so it's, it's very hard. There are developmental milestones and periods in a child's, you know, growing up experience where there's certain things they should be kind of hitting or getting close to. Mm -hmm. Um, But even, even between two kids in the same household, these abilities are harder. So like a five or six year old, they're going to have a harder time than an 11 year old, and it might take a little bit longer and you might have to, you know, move to another area. Um, to, to help with the de-escalation or introduce other skills and that kind of thing. And so it's, and, and it's not always about disappointment. Like we've, we've started with that. Cause I think that is one of the, the bigger triggering yeah. emotions for kids. One of the harder ones for us to learn to deal with. I mean, take it to adulthood. Like when's the last time you were disappointed? We don't just bounce back from that because um, you know, it's minutes over. Ago. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were, you talked earlier about, you know, the kid might powder something. I'm like, I'm a grown man and I'm, I'm in a pouty phase. I got my pouty pants on. And so I'm, I'm trying to shake it um, yeah. and helping talk it through with my wife and stuff. And she's like rolling her eyes being like, put on your big boy pants. But I'm like, but I need to get it out. Right. That's, that's what it's all you're about. You're like, welcome to my pity party. We're going to do exactly. this now. Yeah. Party of one. Yeah. And now you're invited. So yeah. And the, and the difference is in adulthood, like we feel the same intensity of emotion. We just have developed other skills, like talking to our significant others, you know, giving it time, sleeping on it <laughs> and various other things. So, so yeah. it's just a part of it is that emotion is so new to a young kid that they, they just aren't able to, to pull it together very quickly. And, and then it'll leak out. And so kind of going back to that, what is normal? Like, I, I would say that it's really hard to apply that to anything. If you've got a child that doesn't get what they want, and so they're kicking and screaming and throwing a fit and hurting other people. No, that's probably not normal. But does the fact that, you know, a four or five-year-old is doing that mean that that child has a mental illness? No, not necessarily. You know, you, you look at that behavior or that symptom in conjunction with other behaviors and symptoms and other developmental things to find out if there's a problem there. Um, but any behavior could be viewed as normal, you know, isolated like that. Yeah, because the word normal just in and of itself is like, is anyone really normal? Mm-hmm. My kids will call me weird. And I'm like, everybody's weird, man. Yeah, I am weird. So are you. So is she. So is mom. <laughs> Embrace your weirdness. <laughs> Embrace, Embrace your weird. Exactly. So the word normal in and of itself, is there a definition for that, for, for being normal as a, as a human? It just seems like everybody has their quirks. I'm sure there's like a dictionary, Webster's dictionary definition of normal that, that applies to like behavior. You're welcome to, to Google that. I'm, I'm not gonna, because I think, I think it's more important to think in terms of baseline, like an individual's baseline, you know, like for me, you know, there's just some things I know to be normal for me. Right. And I'm not, might not, but might not be normal for, for you. Yeah. And Can I say, a, even though you said you weren't going to look it up. I did. It's conforming to a standard, usual, typical, or expected. Yeah. Yeah. So, so usual, typical, or expected, to me, there's a whole lot of gray area there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is 
expected that my child be able to control her <laughs> emotions, but <laughs> it is not usual that that happens. Yeah, not normal. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, I, again, normal is relative and, and it depends on the person, the situation. Um, and just like the example you gave of, you know, you're in the car and, and the kid wants to go to Ikea, which honestly, I can't blame him. I want to go to Ikea too. And I might Same. have a little it, pity party yeah. as well. Yeah. It was hard because um, I was like, dude, I want to go too, but... I don't have four hours. And, but maybe his baseline would be he could handle that if he was at home and could go get distracted with a video game or a soccer ball or something. But in the car, you know, confined, mm-hmm. he just, you know, he's kind of kicked in the coping mechanism there. I had a professor in grad school that would use that term, kicked in the coping mechanism. And I don't know that I use it correctly, but I understand it to be that when the thing you do to help you get through the hard stuff isn't an option, you've, you've you know, basically been kicked in the coping mechanism. Yeah, so, makes sense. so he might be able to handle that normally, and I'm using air mm-hmm. quotes, sometimes. Yeah. Going back a few minutes ago, you mentioned about like a four or five-year-old having a, a screaming fit that's probably not, again, it's air quotes normal or whatever. And you said it's not necessarily a problem. When does it become a problem? Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So it, it can be a lot of different things depending on the, the situation, the person, the kid, but some some general red flags to pay attention to that tell you it's time to, you know, maybe seek help that this isn't a standard thing is if it's causing problems in all settings. So if you've got a child that is having trouble at school, daycare, Sunday school, grandma's house, friends' houses, play dates, soccer field, wherever they go, if the same problems are showing up over and over again, no matter what adult or what circumstances are going on, it might be an issue. It might be something to address. But even that, you know, depends on what it is. So if it's a if it's a child who's, you know, having meltdowns in those places, yeah, I mean, that that's something to pay attention to. Um, other things to pay attention to if, you know, changes in appetite, if, if whatever's going on with their behavior, their emotional symptoms, those kinds of things are affecting, you know, their eating habits, time to talk to a professional. So, you know, we'll have kids that or kiddos that have so much anxiety um, related to food and eating that, you know, they'll stop eating. And, you know, that, that old saying of like, well, they'll eat when they're hungry. That isn't Mm. necessarily true. If a child has, you know, some, some feeding issues or some intense anxieties surrounding food, they may not. And it may get to a point where they're malnourished because they're refusing to eat or they're only only eating certain things. And that, you know, in and of itself is a huge topic for another episode. But um, the, the key is if it's affecting their physiological health, if they are not eating well, they're losing weight, they seem pale, um, they're refusing to eat, they're overeating, anything regarding, you know, that kind of thing, that would be a red flag. You mentioned overeating because I was like, can it go the other way? Mm-hmm. And maybe eating more and, and the proverbial eating your feelings mm-hmm. kind of thing. So then you're yeah. overeating. Yes, ab- absolutely. And it, it can go either way. And that's same with adults who are having, you know, mental health symptoms as, as well. Um, a big symptom you know, one of the criteria for a depressive disorder diagnosis is, you know, changes in appetite or eating habits. And so that's, that's a red flag to watch for. Um, other, other things to, to really pay attention to would be, you know, if it's interfering, like if the symptom or the behavior or the emotional difficulty, whatever it is you're wondering about, if it's interfering with their ability to learn like developmentally appropriate things. So if a child is not learning to you know, ride their bike or do things that their classroom, you know, their classmates are doing, you know, that, that might, that means that's interfering with their milestone development. Does that make huh. sense? Yeah. Cause I'm thinking you would ride your bike, tie your shoes, mm-hmm. um, roller skate, just things yeah. that developmentally would be normal if it's inter- <laughs> if it's interfering with them, I'm, I'm too afraid to ride my bike or yes. I don't want to tie my shoes because I'm going to get it wrong right. kind of thing. 
Yeah. yeah, I'm too sad to do things that that other kids are doing. You know, and there's a lot of different ways it can look because it de- it kind of depends on if you're looking at it through the lens of like an anxiety disorder or depression or mm-hmm. ADHD. Um, all of those things look very, very different in kids, and so you know it, it can be hard to narrow it down. But that's just something to pay attention to. If it's getting in the way of other things that would be considered normal development, you know, something to pay attention to, something to um, alert your doctor to, or something like that. Um, other red flags would be, of course, if there's safety issues. You know, children, I mean, this is this is something maybe that doesn't come immediately to mind for folks, but if you've got a child with um, symptoms of ADHD and they are just every day doing risky, dangerous things that are putting them in grave danger, you know, they're, they're running out in the street over and over again, no matter what you're doing. They're walking out of the house. They're, you know, four years old and getting out of the house without supervision and nothing you do can stop that. Okay, those are some issues. So anytime safety issues hmm. come up, that's time to ask for some help. Um, if the safety issues are more, you know, suicidal ideation, self-harm, those kinds of things, those are, you know, don't ignore that. That's that's not normal. Um, so it's it's just, you know, anything that like catches your attention in terms of health and safety should should definitely, you know, get a little, get some, you know, another pair of eyes on that. Get, get your physician involved or your pediatrician, and then they might make additional referrals based on what they see. I'm intrigued, Nikki, by the talk of the the dangerous stuff because I was a boy once, but I played it pretty safe. My older brother, on the other hand, was your, I don't know, typical boy. He was in the woods. He was climbing tall trees and skipping rocks and throwing things and doing mean things to me that we'll talk about on another episode (laughs) 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 or in your office someday. Um, But at what point does it become concerning that it's not, it's not typical behavior? And are they hurting is, themselves? Are they hurting others? When when dangers, um, you know, overtake exploration and creativity, and and you know, because you know, we all know people who were daredevils from a from a young age, and mm-hmm. you know, probably had more broken arms and legs than than is average, and that's concerning. But but it also kind of depends on your family values, and that's when it can get really tricky. I mean, there there are some parents that are just like, hey, he's going to learn, you know, or she's going to learn. I want I want them to explore the world and find out what happens, you know, and and sort of the cause and effect of of their stuff, and and you know, that that's working. But if it's infringing on the safety of others, if it's mm. resulting in really really bad injuries over and over and over again, that would be a concern because it's it's suggesting the child is in fact not learning. It's, it's, you know, something is not connecting that when I do this, it hurts. Right. And so it's, it's kind of like, if it's repetitive, if, if like you, you know, you're doing the thing and then you bump your head um, and then you keep doing the thing and then you bump your head and then you keep, you know, and now you've got a kid with multiple concussions, that's different. That's, that's something to be, you know, checking into, but um, there, you know, every kid has their own sort of risk assessment skills and they decide, you know, how much, um, danger they're willing to embark on. And I think exploration and getting to have fun and, and learn the world and be hands-on, that's great. But yeah, I mean, if it's if it's hurting anyone seriously, then we should pay attention. Is it pretty blatantly obvious or is it kind of a fine line? It seems to me with what you're saying, it's like it's going to be blatantly obvious that they're they're not learning from their mistakes. I, I mean, I've seen cases where it's so clear that, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. Um, and a couple just come to mind that like, wow, those, those parents were absolutely having to be on red alert every single day, worrying mm-hmm. about what terrible you know thing was going to happen next that, that was going to hurt their child or <laughs> damage their home or whatever. But I've also seen some that are a little more gray of like, gosh, I can't believe that happened again. You know, 
<laughs> I mean, I learned I'm not going sledding anymore. This is <laughs> it only took one time for me. <laughs> uh, but in some kids, it takes a little bit longer. And, you know, and it also depends a little bit on on the type of risk, too, because like we talked about in a in the discipline episode, if the kid is doing the same thing over and over again and getting hurt over and over again, it might mean you haven't put the right protective things in place. You know, if they're going to keep riding their bike, but you're not putting a helmet on them or something to protect them, you know, then as a parent, you need to figure out what you can do. If they're going to do the thing anyway, how can we make it safe um, is, is an important thing to be aware of. Interesting. All right. Let's switch gears now to talk about emotions. Everyone has emotions. Um, I think as a society, we're getting better with being able to express our emotions, but with children, they can't really help the emotions that they display. If they're upset, we talked about my son being disappointed and he just kept talking and talking and talking. A younger kid might throw a fit. Um, a teenager might ignore you for seven years. So <laughs> how can we explain how important our emotions are and and whether they're developmentally appropriate versus time to seek help? Yep. Okay. So emotions have an important purpose in our lives. And, and we have talked about that a bit before, but um, we have to think about them from a biological perspective. We feel what we feel and it is it, it is our, our entire system communicating with us, um, you know, alerts, potential dangers, um, things to pay attention to when we need to change a behavior, our emotions will kind of tell us that. And so, it, you know, it's our it's our body's communication system to kind of let us know where we are and help us, you know, change our, our path or change our behaviors or our habits when we need to. So we're supposed to have emotions. And that's, that's my point entirely is without emotions, we just, we, we don't, we don't navigate life very well. So they serve a very important purpose. And if we have them, that's a good thing. And so I think we've gotten really good at, or we're getting better at talking about yeah. how we feel, but I, but I do think sometimes we're not so good at paying attention to the message that's underneath it and kind of listening to what that is. And so that, that can cause some other problems too. Like we kind of ignore it, hoping it'll go away. And so then, you know, that then it turns into more of a clinical issue. It turns into more of a problem because the emotion couldn't do its job. The emotion didn't hmm. help you recognize the red flag or help you recognize the the pattern of choices that was, you know, taking your life in a different path than you had hoped. Um, and so it, they serve a function, but when we ignore them, we can, we can result, that can result in more life problems. But the thing to, to know with this is that you know, when you have really bad things happen in your life, or if you experience a setback or a loss or, you know, a job change or something like that, you're supposed to feel it, right? You're supposed to be, you know, experience grief when you lose someone or experience sadness mm -hmm. when something doesn't go the way you want it to. Um, it is totally normal to have a hard time with a breakup or divorce or the loss of someone. And it doesn't mean you need to sign up for therapy. It's not dysfunctional to experience painful emotions in the face of adversity or um, a major life change. And so I think sometimes people, you know, have got to a point where if they experience any negative emotion at all, well, that's not good. And we we need help. We need help. But that's not necessarily the case. You should be okay. sad or you should be mad or you should be experiencing that emotion. You know, anger is, is a tricky one, right? Anger is really important. Anger's job is to keep things fair. And so... Sometimes people be like, I have an anger problem, you know, and, and my question is, or is it maybe your body trying to tell you that you're in a situation that's not right or that something going on around you is unfair? You know, um, is that what is that emotion trying to communicate with you that would help you avoid that feeling instead of I need to fix this problem that I have? Does that make sense? Yeah. What emotion is it to like when somebody gets their feelings hurt? Like, is that an anger issue? Is that disappointment? Sadness. I think it, it depends on what the situation was. So if if your feelings are hurt because somebody left you out, um, mm -hmm. you know, that could be loneliness, rejection, 
Um, just it depends um, if you're excluded, makes you feel bad about yourself, kind of your self-esteem takes a hit. Um, mm-hmm. And so it could be lots of different emotions. Okay. If, if your feelings are hurt because somebody got you, you know, a, a gift that they weren't very thoughtful about and, you know, might just be like resentment, right? <laughs> because it'd be so many different things. Okay. But you're allowed to feel those. Yeah, you should. You, those you are should. normal. Okay. Yes. And, and it's not good if you don't, you know, if you, if a feeling sort of bubbles to the surface and you're like, nope, nope, <laughs> conceal, don't feel right. Push that back <laughs> down. Right. You, you can't, you can't lurk from it. And I, I think sometimes, no, it's not. Sometimes I know our strongest emotions, the things that, that, that we get stuck on or get hooked on, those are pivotal things in our life. Those are the things that help us build character. Those are the things that help us figure out what our values truly are. And so anytime we have a really strong emotion, if our go-to is like, you know, must go to a therapist and eliminate the emotion, that that's not what we're going for. And so, so that, you know, if you go to a therapist, their goal is not going to be to make those feelings go away. <laughs> they, they can't okay. do that. They're going, their job is then to help you figure out what those emotions might be telling you and, and, you know, what changes you might need in your life because emotions you're kind of stuck with. Kind of a hard question to answer then, because we talked about you're allowed to feel the emotions, but if they're not going away, like how long do you let it go before you go, this could be an issue that we need to talk to you about because you're not getting over that depressive thought or that feeling of loneliness or that feeling of being left out. Nobody likes me kind of thing. Yeah. So if you get stuck, so, you know, people get stuck in an emotional experience and I, I think sometimes there there could be a variety of different reasons for that. Sometimes it may be you're you're not getting the message, so you're not changing the thing or addressing the thing that needs to be changed in order for the emotion to sort of release and you know move on to the next phase. Um, you might be repressing it and and keeping yourself from being able to truly process and deal with whatever is going on. Um, but I also think that when an emotion when it doesn't fulfill its intended purpose, we kind of get stuck in it. So let me break that down a little bit. So if you've got a child who's very sad, right? And that, and and sadness, we learned in episode two or three or whatever the one was about feelings. But when we're sad, it's supposed to bring help, right? That the purpose of sadness is for us to reach out for help or receive help or for somebody else in our lives to notice we might need help. And if you have a child growing up in a situation where help is just not available, nobody notices, you know, maybe the kid's experiencing some neglect, or maybe, you know, they're in a situation where the way that they show their sadness isn't registering with others around them. That sadness isn't addressed so that the help doesn't, you know, happen. And so then it can turn into depression. It can turn into other symptoms as well. And so I do think that if we get stuck on an emotion, we don't, we don't, you know, get what we need with the emotions trying to pull into our lives. Um, That can become more of a clinical issue. So like, let's, let's use anxiety, for example, if you're, you know, you're growing up and you're very anxious and fearful because maybe, you know, you're in a situation where you should be, or maybe, you know, it's more of a genetic tendency to be really worried, but like that anxiety is supposed to keep you safe. But, you know, the thing is that if it's irrational anxiety, it's not really able to do its job. It's not, it's not, you know, that fear doesn't do anything to, to make you more safe. And so it, you just sort of get stuck in it. Does that make sense? Gotcha. Yeah. And I just, I want to say, you know, for any listeners, I have observed that I say, does that make sense way too many times? And so I am working on it, but it is a process. And I have already said it three times in this episode. And I will say to the listener that I edit out thousands of them. So the ones you hear on the (laughs) phone. I'm sure we both have some habits that people are picking up on and we're, we're, you know, we're still learning. 
everyone has crutch words because I spent 22 years in the broadcast business. So you do, you, you learn that. But with you, when you talk to patients in your office, you're explaining things, then you have to make sure that your client understands. So that's where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily in podcast land, people can't answer you back and be like, no, yeah. that doesn't make sense. I have questions. That's my job, right? <laughs> Let's talk about mental health uh, as a whole. We talk about just normal health exercise, eating well and everything. And, and there's been a lot of talk lately about doing better with mental health. Let's break the stigma a little bit that mental health does not mean seeing a therapist. There are many different aspects of mental health. Right. So mental health does not mean the absence of a mental health diagnosis, right? You, um, I read a really great article on helpguide.org, and I know I've plugged that website a couple of times uh, before. Good. It's... It, it just talked about it. I think the, it was called um, building mental health or building better mental health or something. Um, I will link to it in the show notes. So people have access Perfect. to it, but, but uh, the gist of it was they, they just, they talked about, you know, mental, mental health isn't that you don't have anxiety or you don't have depression or you don't have OCD. Mental health is having positive characteristics that allow you to be resilient, that allow you to solve problems and form relationships and work through trouble, right? So good mental health, you could have six different diagnoses, but you can still have good mental health because you have, <laughs> you know, these positive characteristics and these skills that help you to balance. And so it's it's about, you know, having good mental health isn't, isn't just a, a one and done thing. It's the steps you take and the choices you make every single day. That That's what your mental health is made of. And that's part of, I know, I think we've talked about it before. I know when we did the the Family Matters with the Beeler family, they talked about their toolbox. Mm-hmm. And my son's therapist has brought that up too, is like when a contractor builds a house, they don't just build it with a hammer. They have lots of tools in their toolbox. And it's the same way with your mental health of having different tools in your toolbox that's going to help you regulate yourself or keep you calm or keep you less anxious and help you move on and 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 do life, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, sometimes I think if we could, if I could start over my parenting journey, um, and then, and oh. I, I know we can't do that. I also don't want to, uh, grow my family in any way, but if, if I were to start over, <laughs> I would spend my time and energy just trying consciously trying to build positive characteristics and traits mm-hmm. and skills and not, I think we get, you know, hyper-focused on, oh, you shouldn't do that or that's bad or what's wrong with my kid that they do this or what am I doing wrong as a parent that my child is behaving in this way. And I just think if we focused on, okay, so how do I build the trait of resilience? How do I build the trait of, you know, critical thinking, problem solving, um, the ability to, you know, trust and, you know, I- exchange respect with other people? Like, how do we build those things? And I, I think that, you know, it just, those things would up the odds of good mental health for children. And yet from day one, you're focused on what could go wrong. Like you're, you're, you're focused on what yeah. you might fail at or, or what might get in their way to, you know, happiness and well-being. And and I just, I think we're, we're wired to, to look at it differently than we maybe should. Yeah. Or when you have the thing that happens uh, that you'd never expected, like, is everyone, when you find out you're expecting a child, you start thinking like, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then it all goes out the window. So yeah, you can read books. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Not until it happens or you get the things like, I never thought I'd say that or do that uh, with the kids. So it's like, it's almost like the fear of parenting incorrectly. 
Well, and, and the deal with fear is, you know, we need it. And I think that it's hardwired mm-hmm. in, you know, to protect us because, you know, if we think back to caveman days and we, you know, are spending all our time building positive traits, like the saber tooth tiger is going to get our whole family and then, and we're doomed. And so I think the, the fear that's there is for good purpose. It keeps us safe. It moves us forward. It, you know, helps us learn new skills. It does the things it's supposed to do. Um, but I think we also have to be intentional and say, you know, I am as a parent going to focus on these things and, and I'm not going to, you know, put as much weight on these other things. Speaking of fear, I want to mention another thing related to fear. Um, there's an article I'm going to link in the show notes that's uh, called the Child Therapist List of Childhood Fears by Age. And it's by Natasha Daniels. And she has a podcast and a website with lots of really great resources. And so one of the things um, one of the resources I found on here was this list of what's normal, like what are, what are normal fears that kids have? And so, for example, you know, kids ages two to four, um, it's normal for them to feel uh, afraid of a toilet. Um, it's normal for them to be afraid of the dark or afraid of shadows or afraid of sleeping alone, um, afraid of loud noises or thunder. Those are things that little kids are naturally afraid of. And none of that means that there's anything wrong with them. Um, you know, I've, I've seen lots and lots of two-year-olds that are terrified of the sound of a toilet flushing. Mm-hmm. Normal. Nothing to be alarmed about. Their little brains don't know how to process that loud noise. They, they don't have a context for it just yet. And so it, it's fearful. And, it, and loud noises should cause alarm because they don't, they don't know how to keep themselves safe yet. So that's totally normal. But then when you kind of move up the list, you get to, you know, five to seven year olds. And so, you know, they're, they're going to have, you know, similar fears. They might still be afraid of the dark, right? But their fears are going to get more developed, right? So now they know what fire is and maybe they're afraid of that. They're talking about it in school. Maybe they're doing fire drills. So now their brains are like, oh, that's really scary. That's frightening. I don't know what to do with that. Um, you know, these kids are going to have, uh, fears of their friends not wanting to play with them. They might be afraid of going to the doctor or getting a shot. Those are totally, totally normal things and don't mean that your child needs therapy or help. Um, Eight to 11, you get into some stuff of, you know, fear of being home alone. You start to experience, now this is, this is important, Chad. Um, Kids between eight and 11 start to become aware of the concept of death and of dying and of losing people. And so you might see kids that are really afraid of getting sick. Um, mm. really afraid of losing someone important to them. Um, this fear of throwing up at school is common at this age. And I know that one <laughs> resonates for me because of course, between eight and 11, you do a lot of throwing up at school. And so for some kids that, that hangs on, you know, yes. <laughs> <first truly. laughs> um, but as you get into your, your, you know, junior high and high school students, things like being afraid of failure, being afraid of speaking in public or doing a presentation, being afraid of other people rejecting you or thinking you don't look good. Those are things that are very normal at that age and not things that indicate you know, a pathological problem. And then, uh, you know, 18 to 20 year olds, they're, you know, they're grown now, but they're still, still kids in many ways. They're still developing. Their brain is still developing. So they might have fears of being homeless, fears of death, um, fears of being romantically rejected or not having a purpose. They might um, have just this fear of, oh my gosh, I'm a grown up now. What, I, what am I going to do with that? So as I said, I'm going to link this article, but it, it's really a good one. I kept it kind of saved was my kids were little. And when um, a kiddo would have a hard time, I would, I would kind of check that and go, okay, okay, that fits within the norm. So like, uh, for example, my kiddo at one point, she just started being afraid of being in the bathroom by herself. Like, and I was like, well, we've been fine with this. Now, why is this all of a sudden 
an issue. And it turns out she was afraid there was something behind the shower curtain. And so with a little bit of digging, you know, I thought, okay, well, that's pretty normal. And then the list confirmed that those kinds of things are pretty normal. And so, you know, that's, that's actually a tip I would give you is if your, your child is fearful and now you're worried, is that normal or not normal? This is really a time where you could probably Google it and find some really good information about what is a standard fear that does not qualify as an anxiety disorder. Just curious, Nikki, when you talk about depression, can you be depressed without having a diagnosis of depression? Oh, for sure. Yes. Okay. So that's that's an important thing I uh, that that I think we we don't realize because words like depression or anxiety they become like buzzwords and and they do kind of freak people out a little bit like oh I don't I don't want that I don't I don't want to experience that but you can absolutely be depressed without meeting the you know diagnostic criteria for. A, a clinical diagnosis of depression. And so the way that diagnosis works in the mental health world is that, you know, each diagnosis or category has criteria and you have to have a certain number of those criteria to meet the definition. Now, I, you know, I always say that diagnosis is as much about like insurance and the, the payment for services as it is mm-hmm. about anything else. And hmm. to me, diagnosis doesn't mean a lot if it doesn't give you an idea of what to do about it. Right. So it's important not to get too tangled up in these man-made words that we use to describe our experiences. You can can absolutely experience, you know, an intense bout of depression, but if it does not meet the criteria or last long enough, you know, you you wouldn't necessarily be diagnosed with it. You can be anxious and not have an anxiety disorder. And the cutoff is is it interfering with your ability to function? Is it keeping you from going to work or school? Is it keeping you from being able to parent your children and function in society? If it is, Yes, then you're probably, you know, venturing into the clinical realm and it and it'd be a really good idea to talk to someone to sort that out and figure out what you need to to feel better. But you can experience, you know, periods of of adjustment, you know, anytime there's a big change in your life, you know, you're you're supposed to feel a little bit different. I was talking with someone today about a new job, you know, and it is completely yeah. normal to start a new job and be anxious and sad. And a variety of other things because you maybe left something you knew, a place where you felt confident and knew your role, knew your people, <laughs> right? And now you're entering a new place where you know yeah. nothing and no one, right? And so you should feel uncomfortable. You should experience some emotions in that. But that doesn't mean that something's wrong with you. It doesn't mean you have a mental health problem. It means that you need to make sure you're engaging in really healthy behaviors on a daily basis and working on, you know, building up the skills and the supports and resources you need in that new workplace um, so that you don't develop a mental health condition, but it doesn't mean that you have a diagnosis. Okay. All right, Nikki, great information as always. Our next episode, episode 21, we're going to talk about different mental health resources and where to find them. And that episode will come out in one week. Again, share this podcast with those who you think would find it helpful. Our goal is to start a conversation and the conversation continues with you.